Hello, and welcome to episode 302 of From Paper to People. My name is Carolyn Neelachlan, and I am your hostess with the mostest for these next few minutes. We're talking folklore with my father today. It's an interview that I did with him back in late October or early November, and I'm really glad to be able to present it to you today. First, though, I want to thank a new patron at Patreon, Katie Andrews Potter, who's a good friend from Twitter, and she's also a listener, a very supportive listener of the podcast. She has come on board at $5 a month. And having done that at the Valentine time of year means that she gets a shot glass. Yeah, I'll be running more specials in the future. But for the moment, that special has passed. I definitely want you all to come on and support the podcast, even if it's just a dollar a month. Anything helps. Anything is great and makes me so happy and helps me to pay the bills that I need to in order to be able to continue to do not only work on the podcast, but also all of the work that I do in reparational genealogy, whether it's researching for living clients, researching trees that belong to trees that belong to lynched persons or trees that are focused on famous people from the black community that the white community knows nothing about. But no matter what, I'd really love it if you joined Katie and you went to patreon.com slash ancestors alive and came on board a dollar a month, $5 a month, $50 a month, whatever you feel good about. If you derive value from this podcast and from the newsletter and from the Facebook fan page and from the Twitter account and from the research that I do, or you believe in the research that I do, then by all means, please come on board. Now, the conversation with my dad ranges a bit. We talk about his family, we talk about his childhood and upbringing, and we also talk about the relative value of different aspects of folklore. And you know that that's something that is very important to me. It's very important to, I think, all of our work, because when you start out, all you've got is your own name and birthday and birthplace and whatever stories you've collected and information about your parents, if you're lucky, and that's pretty much it. So everybody has to start from a baseline. And that baseline does involve folklore. I think you'll enjoy hearing from my dad. He's a brilliant guy. In addition to being well educated, he is just simply brilliant. He's incredibly well read. He was a professional book publisher for all of my life. And He's got a great sense of humor. I think you'll get a kick out of it. So here now is my interview with my dad. Oh, and sorry, we sound like we're in tin cans. I have an interview for you today that I'm very excited about because it's an interview I've wanted to do for a long time. It's with my dad. So everybody welcome my dad. Dad, say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. <laughs> there he is in all his glory. And we're going to talk about taking folklore, but we're also going to take a little folklore. So it's a kind of a self-conscious process in a way today. And I hope you will bear with me and understand what it is that I'm trying to achieve here. But I do definitely want you to hear a couple things that my dad has to say about his life, because his life was very different from mine. I want to start with where it was and how it was that you grew up, because I grew up in a family with two kids, two parents living in the suburbs. Dad worked, mom was at home, and after a couple of years, we had one set of grandparents living nearby because they retired. 
and I had no cousins nearby at all. I only have the one first cousin, and I didn't really get to see aunts and uncles at all because we were in a completely different part of the country. Your life was completely different from that when you were a kid. So tell me a little bit about what the structure of your family was like in the town that you first were born into. Well, the uh, the family was uh, a, a lot of people, to, to state the obvious. My uh, grandfather and grandmother emigrated from the Midwest to West Texas in roughly 1917, about the end of the First World War, uh, because my grandfather was working on uh, oil exploration and the wave of oil field finds spread from the Midwest through the, the, the Eastern Midwest through the Mid Midwest to the South Midwest at about that time. The, uh, they had my namesake, Grandfather had uh, five children, I think, and uh, my father was obviously one of those. And uh, the family had other branches in West Texas, so that there were in West Texas and in Oklahoma, and so that there were a constant, more or less constant com- contact between the, that those families in Texas and Oklahoma and to some smaller extent in Illinois and other, other Midwestern places. So uh, there was a lot of uh, to-do and a lot of discussion of family events and family fa- family values were, were not uh, discussed as values, but uh, there was always, among the children of the family, no mystery about the fact that if you were a McLaughlin, you were thought to be a little bit better than everybody else. <laughs> and my grandmother, McLaughlin, uh, carried that about as far as it could be taken uh, without being lynched in that town. She was a graduate of the University of Kansas at a very early point, and she was in Ranger, Texas, where they lived in their retirement. Uh, she was the, the leading light of the women's club, and she founded the library and did all kinds of good things. And uh, unfortunately, she never got it across to her children, her own children, that uh, she expected them to be college educated. But she made uh, a big point with me and with my brother that uh, we were expected to uh, become educated people to be able to hold up our heads in polite society. (laughs) And you actually, you actually knew her mother as well. I knew her mother who died, I think, roughly at the age of 103. I don't know what my grandmother's age at death was, but my mother's mother, we're talking about my father's mother now on the one hand, but my mother's mother on the other hand, uh, lived to be, I think, in her 90s. And that's that's Oma, who was Agnes's mother. Right. Right. Um, yeah, she did. I mean, she was very spry and getting married as often as she could and doing all of these different things and going down and having drinks on the river in San Antonio with her lady friends from the retirement home. And she was by no means past going down to the river and having drinks with me when I was a a young married man with my wife and children. (laughs) That's very true. She she loved to go down to 
That's part of the Rio, Maison del Rio, I think. And uh, she was a she was a, a good time girl. She was a party girl. And to me, it seems like that's sort of the difference between the two families, your father's side and your mother's side, that your mother's side was, uh, they, maybe they rolled with it a little bit better. Well, it was so, their, their life was so fragmented. And they, none of them ever had any money. And uh, they made of their lives what they, what they could under the circumstances. And uh, so the, in her case, it meant being married a lot. In, in the case of her daughter, my, my mother's sister, also being married a lot and never having any money. And, and uh, they, they just, as I say, they, they just, they made of their lives what they could. And they didn't do such a terrible job of it, aside from a few unfortunate marriages my aunt contracted. Yeah. Now that's Clara. And if you guys remember, I did the episode on finding uh, John Delane and researching his life. That was my Aunt Clara's final husband. He was, I think it was number three out of three. I think that's what I said. You can check back on Either that. three or four. Yeah, it was either three or four. And he was the only one who was really nice. <laughs> the others she divorced. Um, so there were actually a lot of divorces on that side of the family, starting with your grandmother and your grandfather divorcing when your mom was a little girl. Right. And he was maybe not such a good guy. We don't really know all that much. We have only the one photograph of him. Well, let's not cast aspersions where we don't really have <laughs> Yeah, we have, and again, this is how it works. I have stories from my grandmother about what she says happened at the time of her parents' divorce and the reasons why that divorce happened. But I don't have court records that show what exactly the court had to say about it or who filed or what their grounds were. So I'm limited to folklore there. I'm not yet presented with actual facts. And that's part of the difference in taking family stories. You take what you have, you use it as so far, this is what I know, and it's not necessarily absolute truth. And you go from there and you use it to find those records in order to be able to establish absolutely what the real history is of, well, of the know, family. A, I think a distinction has to be drawn between folklore and history. Folklore is the is sort of the working material of history. You'd only It only becomes history when you have established that there is a factual record that supports your, your view of what happened. And uh, if you talk to 50 relatives, you'll get a family history that's a, a, a kind of a soup with a lot of stuff in it that you don't know what it is. And only when you can prove out that some things that people have told you are true and some things that people have told you are not true, do you have the beginnings of the family history. So right. folklore is by far the most interesting because it's the most scandalous. <laughs> it's also interesting because, and I've said this before to you guys, it reveals who the people are who are telling the story, because the viewpoint that is shown in the way that the story is told and in who the hero is or the heroine and who the bad guys are or how it worked, whether somebody tricked somebody or something like that, that tells you a lot about how people view themselves and how they view their family. And that in and of itself is a great way to understand 
who our ancestors were as people, it doesn't necessarily build history, but it builds an understanding of who they were as human beings. And that's definitely a part of what we're trying to do when we're building family history. So I want to fast forward a little bit, Dad. The, um, the other thing that I was thinking of was how life was after your dad was killed in 1941, um, where you lived and how well, you was, occupied yourself. I was six years old, so I was preschool. And uh, aside from the, sh the shock that one has of losing a close relative and the one uh, being aware that the, the uh, economic basis on which you assume your life goes on is, is no longer assured. Uh, you're, you're aware of those as a child, at least I was. And uh, it, it's uh, about as upside down as life can be made for a child. The French have a wonderful word, bouleversé, which means uh, turned upside down. The thing that I was thinking of is that for that time between 1941 and 1945, it sounds like a short period of time. It's the period of our involvement in the Second World War. It's also the period during which you were sort of the head of the house in terms of certainly the care of your brother. Um, and I know that's not completely true. No, but it's partly true. Of. Yeah, it's close enough to the truth. I mean, I, I took responsibility for him. We lived in a number of settings and there was always the preoccupation of my mother with earning a living. And so somebody had to pick up the slack some way. And it, I think it fell to me, just, I never thought about it particularly. I mean, he was just a friend, my, certainly my best friend, as he is today. And uh, so it, was, it wasn't any, it wasn't anything to uh, complain about. Uh, and we got along extremely well most of the time. We were sent uh, in 1951 to uh, Texas on, on buses to visit uh, relatives who still lived in Texas. And in order that we could we, we maintain our ties of some kind to, to our cousins. And uh, so the, the, the caretaker role traveling in that way with him, he was uh, 12, I was 16 and he was 12, was uh, a little more fraught than it ordinarily was. <laughs> he, he would, uh, 1951, was the U.S. was still a military state in 1951. So when you rode the buses, you rode with a lot of soldiers usually. And uh, Patrick uh, liked the company of soldiers. He later joined the army with the view to making it a career at a certain point until some health problems kept him from that. So he would, uh, when he, he and I were on the bus, he would leave me and go to the back of the bus and sit with the soldiers who were drinking whiskey out of paper bags. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I would go back and get him and bring him back. And he would sit there and turn around and look at the soldiers because they were telling and singing songs and telling stories and so forth. And that was really where his heart belonged. So <laughs> I would let him do that as much as possible, but it was a, a constant struggle to keep him in control. And let me assure you that this is who he remains to this very day. 
and that he is actually the one who started the research on the family tree and then handed it off to me when I was 15. And that's how this continued on. But he was the first person to look into the McLaughlin family roots and to take it back from Texas to Pennsylvania. And from Pennsylvania, we were able to fully take it back to Ireland. Well, he, was, he wasn't the very first. The, the, the first documents summarizing the family history were really prepared in the late 1930s, mid, mid to late 1930s by my uncle Keith. Oh, okay. And uh, a lot of things developed from that. But you're right, you're right, Patrick did a lot of the work in uh, establishing who was where and when. And these McLaughlins who you got to grow up around these, or, or at least visit, these aunts and uncles, um, your grandparents, were they storytellers? Was this a part of, a part of life? Well, literally, yes. I mean, my my aunts uh, failed to distinguish fact from fiction. <laughs> they were they were in tenuous touch with reality, and uh, so you got some of the most interesting stories from them. Only later in life did uh, the stories begin to dissolve in the cold light of day. I remember being told, and this is another one that I've talked on about on a, a separate episode of the podcast being told about Charlie and Fanny, who were my grand aunt and grand uncle. And the story was that Charlie had died in an oil well explosion in Desdemona, Texas, and that in despair, Fanny took her own life. And that was a great place to start with a piece of folklore, because we had a headstone that showed that they were either commemorated or buried together, and that they did die on the same day. So we had that much anyway, but it was only after 35 or so years of looking that I finally came across an article that told that he died in a pipeline explosion and that it was in Bristow, Oklahoma, not Desdemona, Texas, and that Fanny did in fact go home and pick up a pistol and kill herself. And so that story, I was given that story when I was given Uncle Charlie's rosary beads which I still have. And so some things, yeah, they're true, but others they're not. I always think of this family as being kind of a tall tale telling Irish American family. Would you say that that's somewhere near the mark? Oh, I think every, every family has its uh, fantasists. <laughs> and, 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 and this represents, you know, the families need to believe in something and to believe, to believe in a, a continuous line of of uh, personalities and to some, to some extent some achievement on the part of some of the members of the family. I don't I don't see the families being very much different from others. I mean they were very verbal, so maybe they talk, talked more about things they didn't know anything about. That's in, that's entirely possible. One of the things that always surprises me because it happens quite a lot is. I'm working with somebody, whether it's a student, a client, it doesn't matter. And that person has no idea about anything, really, where grandparents were born or grandparents' names or how many great aunts and uncles there were. They can't go back more than a really one generation. And this is in a sample family that doesn't have any adoption or, or fostering in it. It's simply 
an American family. It seems to me that I grew up knowing about Charles McLaughlin fighting in the Civil War for Pennsylvania. And he was, how many greats was he, your grandfather? He was my uh, great-great-grandfather. And the story of your middle name comes from his wife's last name. His wife's last name, yes. And that kind of knowledge is something that a lot of people don't have, or they don't realize they have it until they start to tell stories. And then it just kind of comes tumbling out. Now, I wanted to ask you something that's just because, I don't know, I find it curious and interesting. One of the ways that you had to entertain yourself when you were a kid, because there was no TV, books, you read a lot as a kid. Right. Is that something that your entire family did? Was that encouraged? My grandmother read a lot and had a lot of books around the apartment. My uh, two aunts, likewise, read a lot. One of the aunts I remember in West Texas in 1940 had a subscription to the New Yorker. So Wow. And I remember one of them saying, of the English experimental writer, Virginia Woolf. Oh, that Virginia Woolf, she's just another wordy woman. <laughs> so, I mean, there was a, there were some pretensions to literacy. But you and Uncle Pat, it seems to me you had a pretty rich fantasy life that you derived from books. We did indeed. We did indeed. Every, everything that the public library could supply you with when we were children. We got, at one point, I remember in the mid-1940s, we were living in a, in a little town in West Texas where the yard was sand, entirely sand. There was scarcely any grass. And I was at that time reading the L. Frank Baum Oz books. And if I don't, I don't, nobody knows the Oz books anymore, but they, they were a complete picture of a country and a set of governing relationships and uh, relationships between non-Oz people and Oz people that, that were very interesting. It's, they're very much neglected, I think, in the history of American letters. And uh, nothing would do it but that I recruited Patrick into making a replica of Oz as I saw it <laughs> in the sand with rocks as houses and things like that. Awesome. Awesome. And and you guys went to the movies a lot and had we a life the there. Movies. We went to the movies all the time, all the time, because the movies were my mother's great babysitter. I remember seeing, it was the great era of biopics, that is, movies that told you the story of somebody's life. And uh, I remember seeing the biopic of Madame Marie Curie, the physicist, who discovered radium and therefore radioactivity. And I remember being so fascinated with it, particularly the scene in the lab when they draw back the cover and the radium radiates white silver. And uh, I was struck dumb by that. And I sat through the movie twice, although my mother didn't know it, and she got off work. And I was sitting there watching this movie unfold when somebody took hold of my ear and I looked up and it was my mother saying, why aren't you at home now? (laughs) 
the answer was I wanted to be with Marie Curie discovering radium. <laughs> I think you guys can see why it is that I like to podcast because I come from people who enjoy things and like talking about them. And I want to thank my dad for taking some time out to do this. You know, he's not the biggest fan of every little icky picky detail that I find when I'm doing the genealogical work. So thank you very much, Dad. You're quite welcome. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. We'll talk to you next time. And that's today's show. Please remember that I am now accepting new clients at $50 an hour to do research or teaching or both. For anyone who is interested, I take care of everything from forensic genealogy and finding missing parents using DNA triangulation plus trees on Ancestry to teaching how to use Ancestry, newspapers.com, family search, and other websites in order to be able to put a family together from living people going backwards and DAR applications, basically anything you can think of. If it's in American genealogy, I can help you with it. In the meantime, do your research, value your folklore, and above all, expect surprises.